Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, and I am once again taking this podcast very far from my traditional um, neighborhood. I'm not going to be talking to someone from New Jersey or New York, anywhere on the East Coast, but far on the other coast, not even just the Pacific, but the Arctic. I'm talking to my new best friend, uh, Jesse Keel. Uh, Jesse is from Alaska. He's my second guest from Alaska. And we are going to be talking about his um, story in Alaska politics, uh, what he's doing there. He's a member of the legislature in Alaska. And, um, you know, topically enough, I understand he's the representative of the Q District, which is very controversial these days. (laughs) So, um, but I don't know why that's what we're going to be talking about. I think we're going to end up having a great conversation about not just why you should run, but why if you are in office at any level... You can get a lot done in the details and that every state, every locality is actually very different. Um, and I'm excited for this conversation. So, Jesse, thanks for taking some of your uh, precious time to talk today. Oh, great pleasure, Tony. Great pleasure. And so for full disclosure, my district, while we are an Arctic state, my district doesn't border the Arctic. I'm 12, maybe 1,100 miles from the Arctic uh, at the nearest point. But I, I don't have one of the bigger districts in Alaska. My Senate district is only about the size of the state of Massachusetts. So not a, not a large one here. Pretty small. I, I did, I saw that one of the districts is basically the size of like Kansas, right? Like one, there's one district. Yeah, that's but they like, get bigger than that. It's, um, I think people, it's interesting because I was, as I was getting ready to talk to you and uh, think about Alaska and including watching a vacation show about it. Um, when we don't need to discuss her, but when Sarah Palin was the VP nominee in 2008, it seemed like a lot of people were like, Alaska, that's a weird place. Like they just remember that we have 50 states, but also forget that one of them happens to be Alaska. Yeah, yeah. There are a number of things that are different here, um, but, uh, but we like it and, uh, we don't even mind, um, you know, that, uh, those of you in those little states on the bottom, they all kind of run together down there. I'm, I'm never sure where the lines are. We don't even mind that you don't fully understand. It's, it's okay. It seems that way. There are a lot of people there that would like to get away from us even further, I'm sure. Um, but you are from there. You didn't just leave Florida or Texas or Massachusetts to get to Alaska. Um, so what do you, before we start, like, what do you think people should really know about why Alaska is pretty cool? Oh, I wouldn't know where to start. So I'm an Alaskan born and raised. Yeah. Um, uh, my, my parents moved up here uh, and, uh, and had me. And I, uh, I've lived in Alaska my entire life. I went to college outside, um, spent a summer interning in D.C. But, but otherwise, um, the only change I've made was to move from Anchorage, the state's biggest city, to Juneau, the state's capital city. Um, <clears throat> so, it, you know, it's a uh, it's just a fascinating place. It's a, it's a wildly diverse place. Um, everything from um, truly rural um, areas where um, rural in Alaska means something different than it does uh-huh. uh, in the lower 48. Uh, some people prefer the, to use the term bush so it doesn't get um, confused with areas where there is a road and there are electrical lines that connect uh, small towns to other other towns and, and cities because many, many, many communities in Alaska don't have that. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a boardwalk through town, uh, but but there isn't a road that connects anywhere. Uh, so, you know, people travel over tundra in those places and people uh, fly in and out. Um, people move up and down the rivers when they freeze in the wintertime. 
uh, and and they live genuinely subsistence lifestyles. Um, and and those cultures that are ten and thirteen thousand years old at least uh, remain strong and remain proud. Um, but we also have in our what we consider urban, uh, our largest cities, about 350,000 people. Um, we have tremendous diversity. The Anchorage School District, uh, I believe, has ninety-three languages spoken by students. Wow. Um, there are there are areas of Anchorage that are the, uh, considered to be the most ethnically diverse uh, in the country. Hmm. Some of those house districts. So um, it's a it's a phenomenal, a fabulous state um, with huge unspoiled. Uh, truly wild places, um, and and one of the things that marks a classic difference in in Alaska politics <clears throat> are uh, people who who key in on resource development as and and by that they really mean resource extraction mm-hmm. as as the current cornerstone of much of Alaska's economy, um, and and view it as the future. And rankle at having those protected areas where uh, nobody could uh, log commercially or, or mine commercially, um, and, and others who see those very very large protected areas um, as as critical um, conservation areas where uh, natural ecosystems continue to exist um, that are a bulwark against some of the the human caused changes in in ecology around the country. You know that happen around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the environment development debates here tend to be less about um, any particular emissions pipe or stack uh, and more about, uh, you know, 800,000 acres here, 800,000 acres there. Yeah, you start talking about hundreds of thousands of acres, eventually you're talking about some land. You know, well, sure. I mean, you know, uh, you think about wildfire season, which I know is just devastating the American West right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Alaska, we can have a wildfire season that burns 1.2, 1.5 million acres over the course of a summer and doesn't hit any structures. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, again, people have no idea people's concepts of not just Alaska, but the country itself. And that's something I've learned from doing this podcast. I've been able to talk to someone from every state and D.C. is that um, it is a far more diverse country than anyone really can grasp. It's, and it seems so in Alaska. Is that something you grew up there? Did you grow up with an appreciation of the diversity? Or once you got into your office, were you, did you learn a lot, a lot all about that? I think children are children everywhere. <laughs> so, so what was in my house and my school mm-hmm. was the normal thing and everything else was weird. Uh, but you grow up uh, and you start to look around and learn. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I've come to appreciate over time and continue to learn more and more about uh, uh, this tremendous state, this amazing state. I haven't traveled nearly as much of it as I want to, as I need to. Um, you know, I, I've never been much north of Fairbanks. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's about, I'm looking at the map on my wall here, about halfway up the, the main part of the state. I live in the Panhandle. Uh, but, um, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of Alaska that I've never seen. On the other hand, I picked fish in Bristol Bay, you know, based out of Dillingham for three seasons. And, uh, and you get to see the western part of the state. Um, it's as alien a landscape to here in southeast Alaska in the Tongass National Forest um, as as the North Slope would be um, to to you in in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I messaged you on Twitter about watching a vacation show, and you're like, "Oh, that place is way up in this other spot from where I am." Whereas it's kind of like if you say, "Oh, I went to Penn State with tens of thousands of people." Oh, did you know Bob? Like. 
<laughs> get it all the time. Get it all the time. You travel outside, you're like, oh, Alaska, do you know so-and-so? What's startling is how often the answer is yes. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, it's the same same dynamic. When, when we were kids, you know, you'd go outside, you'd travel, and you'd, you'd meet other kids, and they'd be like, Alaska, do you have a dog sled team? Do you live in an igloo? Education time. Except when you wanted to play with people and you just said yes. Now, one of the people who you did know, and I do know, and I saw the reason I reached out to you is you had a picture with uh, your congressman, Don Young, um, who has worked across the aisle. He's a unique figure in all of politics, really. Um, But you look at him, you look at Lisa Murkowski, you look at others, um, Mark Beggett before. um, Alaska politics is very unique. It seems maybe it's going to end this way, but... Um, one of the last places where there's a lot of, um, where people do come together across parties on certain things, at least like you talk about infrastructure. It seems like that is an issue where when you're in Alaska, that's very important to everyone, no matter what party is after their name. Right. Sure. You know, I mean, I often joke this state is a small town. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, Don Young has been Alaska's lone member of the U S house of representatives since before I was born. Um, you talk about seniority, he's got uh-huh. it. Uh, and, and, you know, we, <clears throat> we have our differences, he and I, right. um, obviously we took that picture talking about an issue where, uh, we agreed and, and, uh, held hands and helped each other push, um, in the same direction. So, you know, uh, infrastructure is, is one of those terms that everybody means a little bit different by, um, I think. When you talk about cutting a road into a new area that doesn't have one, you are going to see a lot of um, disagreement among Alaskans. Mm-hmm. When you talk about improving a freight dock or uh, repairing a ferry in the marine highway system or uh, brushing airports at rural run, brushing runways, excuse me, at rural airports, um, you know, then you're going to see tremendous agreement. Uh, it is transportation is a huge challenge in our state. Um, because of the vast distances, you know, I, I'm. Uh, you you mentioned that lodge up. Uh, it's a little bit west of Anchorage, but not all the way over um, to to the Lake Clark Reserve. I, I think that's about 700 miles from where I am now. Um, you know, if I needed to go out the Aleutian chain, I'd be talking about 2,500 miles from where I am now. Uh, if I wanted to go up to to Kotzebue, that's about 1,300 miles. You know, the distances across Alaska are are colossal. Couple that with a small population, mm-hmm. so your economies of scale aren't, um, and and then fairly extreme weather in a lot of places yeah. uh, creates some huge building challenges. Um, that that can make the infrastructure piece really difficult. Um, I'll give you I'll give you a thought thought experiment here. You you want to do a construction project, whether it's an airport runway or what have you, in a remote rural village. You are 250 miles from the nearest good gravel source because you're out on permafrost um, and and so it's tundra above ice lenses. Um, so think about the cost of your construction project when the gravel has to come a couple of hundred miles by barge during the few months of the year that uh, the river is uh, thawed and you can get the barge to it. What did that? What did that do to the cost of your construction project? Yeah. Right now, now you're you're doing it to serve a community of eight nine hundred people. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere in the country, uh, these things wouldn't pencil. Right, you just wouldn't do them. But in Alaska, we serve our uh, our citizens with these projects, even though the costs can be um, 
can be a little, little challenging. Yeah, and, and the logistics of it. And, you know, the the last person I talked to, as I was saying when we first talked, uh, Andy Josephson from Alaska, and he was talking about transportation and also about the impact of climate change on Alaska, where the roads are built a certain way, where the temperatures and climate were a certain way, and, and that if we might not feel a certain degree difference as much in Philadelphia, we're used to 95 degree weather right now, but it it's very hot here today. It's recording. <laughs> no, thank you. But you've had some of those really hot days in the past few years in Alaska. Maybe not 95, but very hot days that are abnormal for Alaska, right? And it, and it really impacts not just, you know, you feeling hot, and I don't have the clothes for this, but actual physical infrastructure can be very much impacted in Alaska because of the changing climate. No no question about it. Um, that's, that's a tremendous issue. Uh, and, you know, some of the most dramatic examples are um, areas way up north, where uh, you have these sort of, uh, think of it like a mudslide in super slow motion. You have basically frozen mountains that are thawed more of the year than anybody thought, and you get this gradual flow um, of colossal quantities of material, and they're going to come down, and they're going to cover the Dalton Highway that goes from uh, from Fairbanks up to the North Slope and the oil infrastructure up there, um, and, and clearing them is going to be uh, an unholy challenge, and it's going to be every single year as that flow continues. Um, it's uh, like I say, it's, it's a. I mean, technically, it's a mass wasting event, but it's it's happening at you know uh, yards or dozens of yards a year, uh, not all at once. So um, it's, and we could go on example after example. Um, you know, the the Cold Climate Housing Research Center up in. Uh, at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, does some tremendous work on what it's going to take to um, to build buildings above permafrost and have a foundation stay. If the climate changes sufficiently that the permafrost doesn't stay anywhere, it excuse me, it doesn't really matter how you built your building, does it? <laughs> you know? right. uh, it it's it's sinking. So um, these challenges are tremendous, and and the farther north you go, the more pronounced the warming effect is um, right now. You you won't feel it to the same extent in Massachusetts as they'll feel it uh, in Arctic Village or, or uh, uh, Unilocleet um, now. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if people look at it and a lot of criticism about climate change are, well, the climate's always changed or, oh, it takes a long time. People just don't understand numbers sometimes. And I don't mean that to mock people. Just if you don't know it, you don't know it. Uh, but it's not just about the rise with the rapid rise of temperatures that you can't adequately address those changes in time because it, the, the change is so quick. Absolutely. And we see that we have entire villages uh, in northwest Alaska and in, in western Alaska that need to move now. Not need to move over the next 25 years. Need to move now. Just like that so, Simpsons episode. <laughs> so, so, you know, go, go back to all that conversation about what it costs to build in those areas. Um, and so, you know, do we just acquiesce to climate change and say, oh, well, you know, you and your ancestors have been there for 10, 13,000 years, but tough. See ya. I, that's not a responsible approach for a state to take. Um, so we, we have these these great challenges. You know, like any government anywhere, money is a limited thing. It's a finite thing. Um, we call on the federal government to help, um, just as they, uh, you know, 
the federal government created the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Bonneville Power Administration, and did massive public works projects and electrified and put roads into uh, all parts of America. Um, we now call on Uncle Sam to help Alaskans deal with uh, these effects of climate change when the river changes course from where it's been for a zillion years. The, the simple fact is um, that we are seeing well, I had the number a minute ago. We're, we're seeing uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years worth of climate impact in a couple of decades. Yeah. Um, sure, it's always changed, but the rate matters a lot. Yeah, for me, the change is that my house is 100 years old, and so we don't have central air because it's hard to do that. Y you mentioned but, you have a, if you have a community that's thousands of years old or hundreds of years like. That's not just like a, a, a slight inconvenience. That's a whole lifestyle for countless people. Uh, unquestionably, you know, and, and there's got to be a tank farm out there for diesel, for heat and power. Uh, or we condemn people to live without electricity. Uh, mm -hmm. There's got to be a water treatment plant and some manner of handling sewage. Certainly not the sewage treatment plants we have in Juneau, which has economies of scale that you have in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, the, there are still villages, I'm afraid, where there isn't plumbing. Right. And, you right. Know, when, when I came to work in state government at the very end of the 1990s, we had a governor who declared that uh, the greatest goal of his administration was to put the honey bucket in a museum. And, and given the context of our conversation, I trust you can figure out what a honey bucket is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we, we didn't get there yet. Um, we're continuing to work at it, uh, unfortunately, much more slowly than we would like or than Alaskans deserve. There are places in our state where people still get boils as a regular thing. Um, not because it's uh, biblical punishment, but because there isn't a sanitary way to handle human waste. Um, we, we have to deal with that. Uh, that challenge from history remains today, and it's getting tougher if you have to move the village. And, you know, the way you put that, I think, is really important. I talk about this with our local police department here in our small Philly town, that we have a very small police force because we only have a small town. But if you have a police force, for example, and this is true for the things you're saying, you have to have a minimum amount of people if you have a police force. You, you can't have one officer because two go on a patrol and there's a chief. There's this. So you have to have at the beginning of any town a minimum amount of government. And I think people, when they talk about shrinking government don't or attacking government, don't realize that there are certain essential <laughs> services and those essential services have to be manned by human beings. And when you're talked to, like, ideologues about cutting things you forget that it's really hard to get that whole axe to government because certain things are essential no no question um you know i i have a, a community in my district um where the greatest budget debate uh with their well one of the greatest budget debates that their assembly had um this year uh was about taking the police force from five sworn officers to six um mm -hmm. total Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that the uh, economics of that you can imagine uh, in a town of roughly 2,500. Yeah. Um, I, I have, you know, I have a community of about 450, 475. There is no police force. Mm -hmm. They rely on Alaska State Troopers for uh, emergency response in the direst, most dire of emergencies. Um, and, and that's something, that's a responsibility the state takes on. Um, in a lot of places, but you you can't really tax 450 people enough to have a full-fledged police force. The, the trade-offs there um, are tremendous, and the costs to the community um, or 
to the state are significant. So in the state of Alaska, we you know provide state trooper service to to the tiny villages and the tiny communities. But you know, if you live someplace truly remote, more more remote than Gustavus in in my district. Um, if the weather's bad, it may be two, three days before the troopers get there when you call for help. Right. Um, th- think hard about whether that's what you want from a public safety response where you live. And, and I'm sure some people, when they hear that, they're like, yep, I know what I'm getting into. And then once you get there, you don't know what you're getting into because it sounds easy until you do it. Yeah, yeah. We could we could spend a, a, a lot of time on, on the challenges of, of remote rural uh, living, but but frankly, all across Alaska, we struggle terribly with um, with alcohol fueled violence, mm-hmm. with sexual violence, uh, domestic violence. Um, our, our statistics um, are terrible. We lead the nation in all of those awful things you don't want that I just talked about, and several others. Um, and and the shortage of of infrastructure and frankly services, um, coupled with I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, coupled with a colonial history um, of of exploitive um, colonization and settlement, mm-hmm. um, has given us generational problems. Yeah, you one you mentioned the Aleutians, and I, we do have a connection there because my grandfather in World War II served in the Aleutian Islands. Oh, no kidding! I have a picture of him, and he was. Uh, um, I don't think he was necessarily spying himself, but he or his cohorts were, I don't know if they were like listening in on the Russians or Japanese. He did go to Japan around then too, I think after the war. So um, when he passed away, he had barely told me anything about his service because he was, he just never talked about himself too much. So I have a picture Mm. of him in the Aleutian Islands. I have a a fondness for Alaska just because of that. Um, But you did mention that you have people, cultures there that are 13,000 years old, which no other state can, can really compare to, right? Like, Every other state, my town here is 200 years old, or not even 200, 150 years old. Um, Massachusetts, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, 1600s. But for the most part, I mean, you have a much older cultures than anyone else, right, in some ways? Let me, let me, well, let me push back a little bit on that idea, Tony, um, because I, I, I suspect I know what that, you're going to say. I think I know what you're going to say, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there are indigenous cultures uh, throughout the lower 48 uh, and, and throughout Canada yeah. that, that track their history back just about as far. Um, the, the coloss- one of the colossal differences is that um, a tremendous amount of that indigenous culture um, has, uh, well, let me, let me put this gently, today is found on reservation lands. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we don't live together as much as we probably ought. Yeah. Um, and, and when... Uh, indigenous peoples live uh, throughout the rest of uh, the country. It is very difficult um, to to express and to celebrate and to live in that indigenous culture. Um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, roughly a third of my constituents are uh, Alaska Native, uh, and primarily they are from the uh, the Tlingit and Haida peoples. Um, who have inhabited Southeast Alaska for as long as there have been humans in Southeast Alaska. Um, when I mentioned picking fish out in Dillingham, right, when it's not the summer fish season with a bunch of people who don't live there, I, I was one of those, um, flooding the town looking for, for fishing jobs or cannery jobs or what have you, processing jobs. Um, it, it is primarily an indigenous community. Um, so 
so it, it's a difference, I think, in visibility. It's a difference mm-hmm. in um, saturation uh, and and how, frankly, effectively the the dominant um, Western culture has has um, how effectively we've blanketed things. And uh, but but those those folks are still uh, everywhere you uh, go to look for them in the lower 48. Uh, I, I, like I mentioned, I went to school outside. It was in Eastern Washington. Um, and, you know, right next to the Umatilla reservation, um, just North of Nez Perce areas, um, traditional areas. Um, and it retained its, its indigenous name, uh, that place. Mm -hmm. But, um, the culture where I went was real white. Um, and, and I didn't at that time seek out, uh, as much as I could have, um, now would like to um, the the indigenous peoples in that area and and listen and learn the way I, I probably should have would have had a richer experience if I had. It's uh, I think to and I apologize for if I was flipping anyway but, and I and it wasn't the intent but um, you know it seems like there's more celebration of or inclusion of all these different cultures in Alaska than some other states for bad reasons or good. Um, and I remember last year during the pandemic, I talked to uh, then representative, now Congresswoman Melanie Stansbury from New Mexico. Uh, and she was talking about these indigenous communities in New Mexico and how they were dealing with the pandemic. And this was early on. And like, it, it was very similar, many, many miles away from you, but talking about getting food out to places, the infrastructure of it, the, um, you know, keeping people apart, getting, making sure they got schooling, and things like that if schools are closed and uh, it it's almost like an alien part to some parts of the country not for her she was very much in tune with those needs but for a lot of people you're not thinking about these communities that exist right here in all parts of the country like you said yeah and and when we partner up and when we we join together and work together and respect one another um we can do great things. So let me let me talk about just the pandemic for a second. Throughout much of Alaska, we have um, an interesting and different way of delivering health services that began as just Indian health service um, uh, uh, providers, and and uh, for efficiency reasons, we did regional nonprofit health corporations that contract with the IHS to provide mm-hmm. that service initially just to indigenous people. Nowadays, those rules have shifted and loosened some. Uh, so in my region, you've got Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium. Um, and we, we call it SEARCH as a, uh, an acronym, although you got to flip the H and the C. And, and I got to tell you, in, in some of the communities I serve, um, SEARCH is the health provider. They serve everybody. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, fundamentally, at their core, and, and as a piece of not only their origin, but their current identity, they remain really a tribal health provider, um, akin to what you might see on, on some reservations uh, in, in the lower 48. During the pandemic, we were able to take the state of Alaska's desperately underfunded and, and desperately overstretched public health system and pair up with the private health providers, you know, the, the private hospitals or the municipal hospitals, and then team up with those regional health corporations that had a presence in every village had some kind of provider. And I'm not talking about an MD. Sometimes it's a PA. More often, mm-hmm. it's a village health aide, right? They're, they're not an RN. Um, they're a rural health worker, which is a credential unto itself, but it's, it's not a nursing level um, when you think about our sort of traditional yeah. hierarchical levels of, of licensing. And, and 
pushed healthcare, pushed <clears throat> the availability of vaccines <clears throat> to an extent that uh, that nobody was seeing in the early days. Uh, excuse me, I'm <clears throat> got to clear my throat here. <clears> throat> uh, but but we were able uh, to lead the country in vaccination in the early days, just by leaps and bounds. Um, and those providers knew the elders, right, and had relationships, um, which got you both your most vulnerable populations vaccinated first for maximum, you know, life-saving benefit. But also, you want to talk about influencers in a traditional village, right? The elders are are looked to in uh, culturally, um, and and you had places in Alaska where there were still people who remembered the 1918 flu pandemic. Wow, the few survivors. Right? I, I read I talked, about that. Yeah, I mean, I talked with an elder here in Southeast who uh, who did not herself see the 1918 pandemic, but she talked to her uncle, um, who would tell her the stories of going to initially um, the funeral processions from the first people who died of the 1918 flu, and they were on the beach, and the everyone in the village lined up, right, and the lines as the 1918 pandemic went on got shorter and shorter. And shorter as there were fewer fewer survivors and and she knew in a way that i could sort of conceptually get i guess as a numbers thing she knew from her uncle through that uh that culture the pain that an uncontrolled pandemic that community spread as a as a way to get to um to uh you know immunity uh or herd immunity i guess decimated populations she knew what that looked like if you really let it go unchecked um and and could point to you know uh the the powerful effect of vaccination and modern medicine and preventing other diseases from having had that same effect on already diminished populations diminished in numbers Uh, so so that communication was was vital and powerful and the health infrastructure coming back full circle to where we said this little tangent, uh, in those villages was just crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, I had communities in my district, you know, Skagway is not a majority Alaska Native population, but Search is the, basically the provider there. That's an overstatement. The primary provider there. Skagway was vaccinated as far as you can get a town vaccinated, um, you know, in a voluntary system before Juneau, the capital city, was up to 50%. Yeah, I remember a story, and I was just looking it up while we were talking, from last year when they found evidence, in, uh, I think, of the actual flu from 1918 in Alaska. There were studies that were done because of things that were frozen, um, and it, it's, it's really incredible the kind of history you can find when looking for it. Um, I did want to go back because there was some one reason I was excited to talk to you in particular after looking up your background and, and that you had been to Washington. I talked to Washington State Rep. Uh, Noelle Frame um, a few years ago at this point, and she could classify herself as a budget nerd. Um, and you you get into the details. And I, you know, the podcast is called You Should Run, and people, when they go, they look and they think, they think of these big, wide-ranging bills or issues. And they don't realize that you can get a lot done in the details, right? Like, and you are kind of, uh, you know, line item nerd in a way that, that you, you look at those details of what you can do. Why is that so important? What can you get done by, by focusing on the budget? Oh, uh, I think, I think that question comes at it from, uh, from 180 degrees. You can't get anything done unless you focus. 
right. on the budget. And and um, so just a tiny bit more background on me. Uh, I was a legislative staffer for 18, 19 years before I ran for, you know, uh, quit my job to run for the Senate. Um, the joys of a 60% pay cut. I, I had also mm-hmm. served in local government while I was a legislative aide. Um, I can't tell you how many eager, young, fresh-faced people right out of school and campaigns and whatnot came to the state capitol building, were ready to pass bills and make policy, and, and God bless them. And I would say to those people, any chance I got, what you want to do is learn every detail of the budget. They would look at me like I was speaking Greek or Martian and, uh, and say, uh, why? I mean, that's not really what I'm here for. The simple fact is, if you want government to do a thing, you have to pay somebody to do those Mm -hmm. things. If you want government to knock something the heck off, you will usually have an easier time stopping it by stopping the money for it than you will passing a landmark piece of legislation that repeals whatever it is. So, um, you know, I once had a boss who really wanted... um, to make sure that uh, any time uh, farmed fish was served in Alaska, it had to be labeled as such on the restaurant menu. So people knew they were getting a, a mushy, chemically dyed uh, trout marketed as a salmon, right? Um, sorry if you have any Atlantic salmon fans in your podcast feed, but... It hasn't yeah. come up. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, and he passed a bill that was going to mandate that labeling on restaurant menus. And the governor at the time wasn't into mandating anything. And so they said, hmm, you know, to do this, we're going to need two more restaurant inspectors at a cost, you know, all in salary benefits, travel, et cetera, 100000 each. The state was in a tough budget time. He said, this is going to cost the state two hundred grand a year every year. And uh, a lot of people said, wait a minute, I, don't, I want to support commercial, you know, wild Alaska salmon um, and, and jobs and whatnot, but I don't, I don't want to boost the state budget by almost a quarter million bucks. And we ended up negotiating out that that fiscal note, right, so that we didn't add new inspectors. We just added it to the checklist that restaurant inspectors did anyway. Um, but, but that was a, a tactic and a tool, right? If uh, what we had wanted to do, however, was uh, – well, I'll go much bigger. Alaska used to have what we called the longevity bonus. It was uh, a monthly payment to senior citizens, um, uh, you know, its, its origins are shrouded in the history of having more oil money than we knew what to do with. And frankly, this being a state where um, in the urban populations, in the, not to put too fine a point on our white populations, people tended to come here, make their stake and go home. We wanted to keep more senior citizens here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this was long, long before my time. Uh, and the state had decided at one point to phase that out. So everybody who was getting a longevity bonus could keep getting it, but no new applicants. Well, the budget got tight back in the early 2000s, and uh, the governor at the time uh, introduced a bill, governor's bill, to end the longevity bonus program. And every legislator said, <laughs> no, thank you. I'm not going to vote against uh, how many seniors in my district? Right. Um, or they said, this is a valuable program, and I support it in principle. Either way, the bill went nowhere. So... The governor used his line item veto pen, and he eliminated all the money. Well, there weren't enough votes to override his veto. Program ended. Right? He used the budget. Mm-hmm. He didn't pass the bill. 
So you can do that in the forward direction. You can do that in the backward direction, whether you want to start something, whether you want to stop something. But if you, if you don't put the money there for the government to do the thing, the thing doesn't happen. Well, and then a governor, and you have your issues in your state with governors plural over the years and the issues with the, the changing politics, but um, you end up, whether as a legislator or governor or anyone else, you end up feeling the impact of that, right? Like maybe you didn't, I don't know, in terms of your constituents, but people who feel one way or another, once you do that thing, you cut that program or you add it, like within a year, people start noticing that that money isn't there or that it is there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the simple fact is that um, people use government services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... and uh, <clears throat> There, there's a great line um, I, I will steal from my uh, actually opponent in the election where I uh, got the Senate seat because um, we had a similar take on on some of the um, there was a gubernatorial election going on at the time and the governor who ended up winning had these magical budget cuts he was promising that nobody would feel because he knew where all uh, the waste was. Um, by the way, when he got elected and started proposing massive cuts to things Alaskans use, there was an outcry like you've never seen in this state. And remember, I've, I've been in state politics for 20 years. Um, but uh, my opponent said, when people tell me that, I ask them, which thing that you use are you okay to cut? Don't don't tell me what thing the other guy uses that you're okay with him doing without. What mm-hmm. thing are you okay doing without? And And... Uh, except when you have folks who, who sort of imagine to themselves that they truly live without government services. And then there's an education process about what we all use, right? When it, when it comes to, hmm, you know, are, are, are your customers educated? Can they earn a wage and, and, and frequent your business? Oh, where'd they get that education, right? How'd they get to your business door? Oh, on public infrastructure? Right. You know, and we, we can go on, right? Who, who exactly. do you call when there's a threat to the safety of your business? Oh, publicly funded public safety workers? So, you know... Uh, <laughs> But, but uh, you find darn few people, including those who, who um, tend to take a all we need to do is cut the budget and things will be fine position, who are willing to identify things they use mm-hmm. uh, that they're willing to cut. What, what I use is essential, critical government service that is just uh, the, the definition of legitimate public spending. What you use is wasteful fluff. Yeah. I, I've heard that a lot. And you, you mentioned your governor, and I know I'm taking up, um, you know, you had a lot to say, and I really appreciate it. Um, you have an in, the most interesting political situation in the country in Alaska. We try. You try. Um, you have, like, multiple parties. You don't really have this Democrats and Republicans, right? Like, you guys have built a coalition that's a governing coalition. And I think people from outside of Alaska don't know that. So can you just quickly... Um, you know, to, you know, disseminate all of Alaska politics over the last few hundred years. Could you, like, what does that mean for Alaska governing? How does it work that people outside probably don't realize how that legislature is working? Yeah, I mean, you know, Alaska has, um, we tend to have a libertarian streak in our politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we tend to have some cultural differences. Uh, we tend to have a lot of small towns where people know each other. And so party tends to matter a lot less mm-hmm. than some of the the biggest issues um, and, and what those biggest issues are tends to vary uh, from from elsewhere. When it comes to parties, uh, and we got Republicans and Democrats mostly. Um, it's been a very, very long time since we had a libertarian. Uh, well, they still have ballot access. We got a couple of Greens. Yeah, and I don't just Here's mean like Democrats, that, are, but like there's parties yeah. within the parties, right? 
<laughs> as is true everywhere, but right. yes. But the other thing is 52% of Alaska voters are not registered to a political party. Mm -hmm. They're um, uh, nonpartisans, they're undeclared. Um, and so uh, that, that uh, dynamic continues into the legislature. And, and I think it will, by the way, do so even more uh, as we go to rank choice voting in mm -hmm. our next election. But even in the party primary um, and, and uh, uh you know, party-based ballot access, we've had a, a petition process to get on the ballot that has been, been used a lot by nonpartisans. Uh, we have quite a few nonpartisans serving in the House right now. And the House is on, oh, I'll get this wrong, at least its fifth year, I should probably have this memorized, of having a bipartisan, by a nonpartisan coalition uh, running the, the body, uh, and, you know, serving as the majority. This, by the way, on the heels of the Senate having done that um, from 2006, excuse me, 07, after the 06 elections, uh, through 11. Um, you know, these, these bipartisan coalitions um, and multipartisan, I guess, have have their roots, I guess, a little bit in, in Ted Stevens, for whom I interned in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. when I was in college, uh, World War II vet, um, and a Republican. Um, but he famously uh, would say on occasion, uh, to hell with politics, just do what's right for Alaska. And, you know, when I interned for him, I, I shadowed him one day uh, on a day when they had chained roll call votes on the U.S. Senate floor. And there were times, um, the issue was the 96 welfare reform bill. Uh, there were times when he was one of uh, two or three Republicans voting with Democrats on amendments mm -hmm. because they were the right thing for rural Alaska. They were the right thing for remote regions. Um, and, and, and the, the partisan uh, philosophy approach didn't work right when applied to life as people live it here. That notion continues here. That's um, good. It, and then it percolates through into some of our very unusual political structures, the biggest of which is the permanent fund and the permanent fund dividend. Um, and, and to give you an oversimplified, unfair take on that, back when the oil money was flowing faster than all the best politicians and all the worst politicians we had could figure out how to spend it, which, that's that a hell of a money flow rate, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, Alaskans passed a constitutional amendment. Our constitution usually prohibits any dedicated funds. We passed one that said a little sliver of the royalty money is going to go into a permanent fund you can never touch the corpus. The earnings are general fund. And what that did was it turned the non-renewable oil resource into a renewable cash source of investment money. Um, a few years after we created the fund, um, the oil money had slowed a little bit, but the ideas for how to spend it had gotten bigger and bigger. And so there were a bunch of folks who said, you know, this isn't time to spend these earnings yet. We're still flush. Let's protect this by putting a piece of those earnings into a dividend for Alaskans. And an important part of this is that um, Alaska is what we call an owner state. The, the mineral resources under the ground, whether it's oil, coal, gold, silver, um, gravel, uh, that's owned publicly. So uh, if, uh, you know, if you live in Texas or Oklahoma and there's oil under your field, you are rich. If you live in Alaska and there's oil under your property, uh, the state of Alaska owns that oil. You may get surface access money, um, but you don't have a royalty share in it. You're hmm. not the owner of that oil. 
So because that resource wealth belongs to all Alaskans in common, there's another reason that people felt very comfortable, much more comfortable, providing a dividend from the permanent fund. Well, over the years, over the decades, that check has grown um, and it has become uh, a, a critical part of our political culture. People like me say, wow, is there anything more progressive that we, we could do than give the same number of dollars to every Alaskan, rich, poor, um, I, I suppose we could means test it, but then you lose political support. We could only give it to the poorest Alaskans. But the simple fact is, right, whether that check's $1,000 a head or whether that check is, as some propose, uh, massively more, um, I'm a family of four, right, and my wife and I both have an income. Um, our, our household gets some significant benefit from that. Look at the family of four in my district where it's just one parent and three kids. Mm -hmm. and, and that parent's working multiple jobs just desperately trying to pay rent. The benefit they get in the ability to live their lives, provide for what those kids need, uh, proportionally is so much larger, right? That's huge. Um, <clears throat> but there's a problem, Tony. And the problem is that oil's not flowing at 2 million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. Oil is flowing at just under a half a million barrels a day. And the price is not what it was. And oh, by the way, we had a series of Republican governors and majorities that cut our oil taxes, so we're not getting for it what we used to get for it. Mm -hmm. we, we have no broad-based taxes in Alaska, right? The oil money uh, has uh, taken care of all that since 1981. Local government might have a sales tax, property tax, but the state doesn't do either of those things. Um, we have a property tax on oil and gas property, but not on personal property. Um, so now we have this problem. Right, the permanent fund was meant to be was created to be a source of renewable cash when the non-renewable oil started to dwindle and run dry. I, I think we're there. Um, we actually get vastly more earnings from that sovereign wealth fund, the permanent fund, than we get from oil these days. Part of that's our uh, uh, oil tax structure, but not all of it. I mean, it, it, we've really hit that inflection point. Mm -hmm. So now, what, what do I do as a fairly progressive guy when people say, oh, what we need to do is cut that $4.5 billion state operating budget, annual operating budget, by a billion and a half dollars to make up the gap so that we don't have to touch those permanent fund dividend checks? One thing I say is we need to fix our oil tax structure. That's good for two, $300 million without wrecking things. Others will tell you we could get more. I don't think so. Um, one thing we need to do, I think, is have a broad-based tax, and we can talk more about that at great length. That's good for four or $500 million a year. We can't balance these books without some use of permanent fund earnings for government services. And some of my friends say, wait a minute, you just said that's the least progressive thing you can do. Except it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. The thing I could do that would hurt that family more would be to take away their Medicaid. It's a choice. So right, would be to take away their right. kids' education. Right. right. That you want to talk about regressive. Right. And and you want those level of budget because we've been cutting the budget for years. It used to be five and a half, six billion a year. Now it's four and a half. We we've done the cutting. Right. The fat's gone. Now we're talking about services. Yeah, I think so, that people don't realize that progressive or conservative um, moderate, whatever, at the at at some point it's about a choice. You know, and, and, and 
what the impact and the, the result of, of this weird political dynamic is we have our farthest right members of the legislature saying that's Alaskans money don't you take one single nickel of it mm -hmm. everybody should get a three thousand dollar check and that's conservative <laughs> and, and and you go wait wait I'm sorry a free government check of unearned income is conservatism? I, I thought that's what Andrew Yang was talking about. Yeah, if you said that in Pennsylvania, people would go nuts. <laughs> like, it wouldn't make any sense. So, this weird dynamic has really shifted Alaska politics. And you can see where uh, you, you have some old-school conservative Republicans who say, don't you dare take an earned dollar when there's an unearned dollar available, right? Don't tax to provide a check. Uh, and you, you have other people who, who call themselves conservatives who say, look, that's uh, that's your ownership interest, and it's not the government's money, it's the people's money, and so the conservative thing is to leave the people's money in their pockets. Uh, you know, if you're getting whiplash here, you're, you're not alone. Um, Alaskans are going through that same whiplash. Well, one thing I don't want whiplash on, and I want to close with this, is um, I don't want people going back and forth on whether it's important to run for office. You have gotten a lot of details on. You really understand the, the ins and outs because you worked in uh, government before running for office. You know, the situations are different from Alaska to Massachusetts to Pennsylvania, where I am, to Florida, et cetera. Why, right now, in an odd year, um, do you think it's important that people commit to either running for office or encouraging their friends who they like to run for office and get people into the process? This is this is the time to do the homework, to set things up, to build uh, groups of people who are going to support you. Um, and you don't have to come from a political pedigree, right? I, I don't have anybody else in my family who's in politics except, well, I got a cousin actually in New Mexico uh, who ran for county office after after I ran for uh, local office. I mean, th this is not um, my you know my family business or any of that, and it doesn't have to be yours. And um, yes, I am you know a middle aged straight cis white guy. Uh, Me too. <laughs> but but hey, you know, uh, be whoever you are. Bring what you have to the table and get things done. The what what few people realize, whether it's local government or whether it's state government, a lot of your time is going to be spent on potholes, poop, and pet problems, but. People care about those things, mm -hmm. right? And as you work to make wherever you live better, and, and you may not make massive uh, structural uh, epical change, but, but you can make people's lives better. Whether you, know, you share my politics or whether the way you make things better is, is ending more government things, getting whatever your philosophy is, whatever it is, make where you live better. And now is the time to get involved in that at whatever level interests you the most and, and, and do the research, have those conversations. I, I always encourage people to run. I also encourage people to run smart, mm -hmm. right? So, so don't be the, the fourth progressive in a five-person race uh, that doesn't have a primary, like local government often doesn't, where um, you, know, you, you all split a progressive vote and the conservative ends up winning with a 35% plurality vote, right? Have those conversations ahead of time. Decide who's going to run this time and who's going to run next time and who's going to work on what other issues. I mean, that <clears throat> people tend to think of that as, oh, dirty backroom dealing. No, it's, it's just smart planning. It's working mm -hmm. together. Don't ever let anybody tell you that because of your identity, you shouldn't be that person. Have the conversation about who's building the better coalition and who can do the job. And, and you know, the hardest thing I'll ever tell anybody is the thing I struggle with, get your ego out of it, right? Yeah. Think about what's going to be the best result for where you live. 
Yeah, I think about that even in our town because we have three wards that are send council members and like, and I hear someone's great. I'm like, oh, it's so good to meet you, Jesse. Oh, you're in Ward Two. All the cool people who want to, who would be good to run for office live in Ward Two. Can you move to Ward One? Can you like? And you gotta like amplify the one great person that lives in this place, and then find time or other options for the people who live just three blocks down the road. Yes, yes. Uh, that that that. Anytime there's a line, there's going to be someone on the other side of the line. It happens. Um, but but get those people extra. Mm-hmm. To get those additional people uh, involved in, in all the ways, right? Whether it's your local planning commission, um, le- learn to love what the planning commission does. It makes a huge difference in how people um, live and work. And, you know, here I am, a, a, you know, a fairly progressive Democrat. I, I think people like Chuck Marone, who's kind of a deregulator, is a ge- are geniuses when it comes to, um, to uh, planning and, and community development in ways that fit the community. <laughs> Don't be bound or locked in by, by any one piece of who you are. Think broadly and, and do it as long as you're doing it for the right reasons to make your community at whatever level a better place. You know, get involved. Uh, do you have a do you have a Parks and Rec board? Is that what you care about? Do you have an Equal Rights Commission? Is that what you care about? And even if you're not the one to run this time, get in there, improve your world, and and run next time if there's a great opening if there's an opportunity make an opportunity you know um but but the more people we have doing all the good work uh the better off we're all going to be the better our communities are going to be as places to live to work to raise our families to start our businesses um and never be afraid to to reach over across whatever you think might be a line and and shake hands and, and sit down and have a cup of coffee or or a beer or however you do your your thing have dinner together and, and talk. Figure out where you can work together, even if you're going to fight like cats and dogs on the other thing. That's um, that's just part of it. I'll say one more thing. I know I'm taking up a bunch of time. <laughs> Never be afraid of the bullies who are going to call you names. I talk to people and I encourage them to run sometimes. I say, oh, but there's this uh, Facebook group and they're so nasty and they always say these awful things about people. And you know what? There are, there always have been, and you see them differently because there's social media now. But the simple fact, you know, I live, so the capital city uh, of Alaska, Juneau is about 31,000 people. Yes, there are four or five dozen Facebook trolls who will call you names. Don't. Whatever you do, don't let the other 30,940 people suffer for lack of your involvement. Because of five dozen jerks. And right? on that point, it's my experience, and I've heard this from other, a lot of other people, most of those people who spend all their time saying crazy things on Facebook never show up to anything good, bad, or indifferent. <laughs> I, 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 w- I will say, Tony, that um, on occasion, as we have kept our office records and whatnot, um, the, the people who write uh, furious emails uh, declaring that they'll uh, be the ones who make absolutely certain I never uh, work another day in my life have a tendency not to be registered to vote mm-hmm. or to have a voter history of voting once every six or eight elections. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that's fine. That's their right. They're Americans and they can be as involved or uninvolved as they want. The point is, never let somebody mean rob all the good and decent, nice people, hardworking people in your community of, of the good work that you can do when you run and get involved, when you volunteer and serve on that board, whatever it is you do, um, 
don't don't let a couple of bullies push you off it and rob everybody else of the the great value you're going to bring, the improvements you're going to make for everybody, right? I mean, you know, and, and that's not just government. I mean, serve on your synagogue board, your church board, right? There's always that catch. There's always that complainer who makes it miserable to serve on the board for, you know, a day of every month, right, when they call you up. But everybody else needs your work. Yeah. Everybody else needs that that church, that synagogue, that, you know, apply it to whatever group you're talking about. You get in there and do your part. Um, eh, yeah, there's going to be somebody. They're not. They're not who you're working. Uh, well, you're working for everyone, but they're not making the decisions. Well, I'm glad you're making decisions. It was really exciting talking to you today. And if you're li- everyone's listening, you can follow Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Keel K J E S S E K I E H L. Since this is an audio podcast, um, <laughs> definitely follow him and learn more about Alaska. You will not be disappointed. Um, and Jesse, any other way that people should follow you, really quickly. Oh, I've got a Facebook. It's at Senator Keel. Um, and then your TikTok, uh, right? You're very big on TikTok? Not yet. I have a 16-year-old daughter. She's a ballet dancer. She informs me that I should not try the TikTok dances. So, you know, I think she'll get off to college and uh, then I won't be under her thumb anymore. Of course, it's, that's going to be like 16 months. TikTok will be dead by then, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> My son is seven, so hopefully by the time he's old enough to to care something else will come along its way so um, Uh, undoubtedly thank you so much and best of luck in alaska hopefully i can come out there and enjoy the beauty of it sometime soon hey give me a call i'd love to see it i will and if you're listening you should run for office Yeah.